0: You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet.
1: I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of The Bible for Normal People. What you're in for today is part three of my series that I've been doing this year on rediscovering Jonah. This is the final part to this series. Of course, there is so much more we could cover, but we're going to end it here. If you haven't already, you can go back to listen to Part 1, which is Episode 123 back in April, and then Episode 142, which came out in October, would be Part 2. This is Part 3. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template. With Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good.
0: So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people.
1: So what has happened so far? Again, this is a very small, short book, just a few pages in our English Bibles. Jonah is called... To preach judgment against Nineveh. This is where we begin our story. Jonah refuses and flees from God. This ends up in a whole world of trouble for Jonah on the way to fleeing from God. God finds Jonah and Jonah asks to be thrown overboard when a great storm comes and he descends to the bottom of the ocean and then out of, as we learned last time, creation itself shut up into Sheol, or the underworld. The fish, then, is this vehicle of salvation and comes and rescues Jonah. Jonah is rebirthed and vomited onto dry land. Now, what's the rest of the story? We're going to just take a quick minute to do an overview, and then we're going to dig into the second half of the book by digging into the overall themes And questions of the book. It seems a little easier to do it that way than to go chapter by chapter, partly because I don't want to lose everyone in the details if you don't have a book in front of you, if you don't have a Bible there that you're reading along with, but also it helps to solidify what this book may be about. Again, scholars don't completely agree on what the book is fully about. But what's the rest of the story before we go there? Jonah is given a second chance in Jonah chapter 3. Chapter 3 actually starts almost identically to how chapter 1 began, with a couple of noticeable differences, but it's similar. The word of Yahweh came to Jonah a second time, "'Go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it what I tell you.'" So, Jonah is given a second chance. And this time, he goes at once to Nineveh in accordance with the Lord's command. Nineveh hears the word of God in a five-word sermon that Jonah will give, And out of that response, the Ninevites repent, and that ends chapter three. And then chapter four is this debate between God and Jonah on what just happened, what it means, and these object lessons that God provides for Jonah. And in that chapter, we enter into wisdom territory. We see that Jonah is cut from the same cloth as Job and Ecclesiastes. All three of these books have the goal to go toe-to-toe with God and ask God the hard questions. It's one of the things I love about all three of these books, is that they're not afraid to ask the difficult questions, and they don't actually give us simple answers. They end sometimes with more questions than answers. They end with mystery, and we get no different in the book of Jonah, which ends in a question. We don't get a clear-cut answer of who God is or what God is up to because there maybe isn't always a clear answer for some of these more difficult questions. But we are going to talk about some of those questions and explore these themes in our time today. Again, we're going to, rather than going chronologically like we did with chapters one and two, we're just going to be hitting a few themes as we wrestle through what it means for the Ninevites to repent and for Jonah to be involved the first one we're going to talk about is prophecy. First, we run into this question of prophecy because Jonah is a prophet and Jonah is commanded to go to the Ninevites and preach and proclaim to them what God tells them. So, to go back, I said chapter 1 and chapter 3 start almost identically. There were a few differences. The, the primary difference is that in chapter 1, Yahweh tells Jonah to go to Nineveh and proclaim judgment. In chapter 3, if you notice, that word is noticeably absent. Yahweh tells Jonah to go to Nineveh and proclaim what I tell you. This change from judgment to what I tell you starts to make a little more sense in verse 4 when we get to Jonah's five-word sermon. Now, this is five words in Hebrew, not English, so... Don't be snarky with me and tell me that I'm about to say more than five words. I know that. But in Hebrew, it says, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, you may not, that may not be a big deal in English, but if we look at the Hebrew, that word translated overthrow is actually ambiguous. It could mean overthrow in terms of destroyed, overturned, or it could mean turned over or or to be changed. This is... Now, an ambiguous message from the prophet, 40 days more and Nineveh will be destroyed or changed? We don't know. And that starts to ask questions in our minds about the purpose of prophecy and the office of a prophet. Does the prophet preach doom? Or does the prophet preach hope? Or does the prophet preach doom which leads to hope? Do they preach repentance? Do prophets predict the future? How does this all work? And if we look at, in the Hebrew Bible, the various ways that prophets work, we start to understand why these questions are important. If the prophet preaches doom, right? So, a lot of prophets, Jeremiah and others, will preach doom, but if the people repent and actually change, has the prophet done well or did the prophet fail? Right? Because if we go back to Deuteronomy, we'll see that one of the primary ways that we can tell if a prophet is a prophet that's a false prophet is if they predict something that doesn't come to pass. So, for the prophets, this ambiguity, this question is a matter of life or death. Because if a prophet says something that will happen, And it doesn't end up happening, that prophet is a false prophet and should be put to death. If Jonah had gone to Nineveh then, straight away, right, back in chapter 1 and preached judgment, as Yahweh had said, and then the Ninevites repented and no judgment came, wouldn't that make Jonah a false prophet? This is all very confusing for the prophets. As such, you know, James Kugel who we've had on the podcast suggests that Jonah isn't actually running away in some malicious way in chapter 1 but is actually trying to protect himself and the office of the prophet. What if I go and then I know how God is and God will relent? How what does that mean for me as a prophet? So in this way Kugel suggests that that Jonah feels betrayed. Of course the ambiguity is helps here for the drama of the narrative as well, right? We're wondering, 40 more days and what? Will Nineveh be destroyed or will Nineveh be restored? On the one hand, the ambiguity gives Jonah a way out, right? If judgment doesn't come, he's not a false prophet because it's ambiguous. We could just say, no, God's message, the sermon was, 40 more days and Nineveh will be changed. On the other hand, we don't get the uh, idea that that's the only problem with Jonah, is this ambiguity of the office of prophet. Because we see in chapter 4, it seems as though Jonah would have preferred judgment. So, the question is raised in the background though, when we are a prophetic witness, Do we desire retribution or restoration? Do we want people to be overturned or turned over? Do we want them to be destroyed or to be changed? And that is a tricky question. And it plays on one of the major themes that we'll talk about last, which is God's mercy versus God's justice. And what is the relationship between those? And maybe there's not a clear answer. So, the first theme that we run into here in chapter 3, and, and it really goes through the whole book, is prophecy. The second one that goes through the whole book, as we see through chapter 1, 2, and 3, is repentance, which again is tied to the idea of prophecy. Whether they will be overturned or turned over depends, in some sense, it seems like, on how people take the news. We see the response of the sailors in chapter 1, That's then mirrored in the response of Jonah in chapter 2 and the Ninevites in chapter 3. Repentance is an important theme in the book of Jonah. Frankly, it's an important theme throughout the Hebrew Bible. As the Israelites continue to mess up, there is often then this call to repent, to change, to change our ways, to change who we are, to change how we are in the world. And this is no different. Of course, it's a little bit different because the focus of the repentance isn't on Israel, which it often is, but is on a non-Israelite group, the Ninevites. But let's look for a minute at the the repentance of the Ninevites here in chapter 3. And in some ways, it reminds me of the book of Job. If you read that story, the author is painstakingly hyperbolic. That means, the author exaggerates quite a bit to let you know that Job is about as perfect as he could be. He's over the top in his righteousness, even offering sacrifices for the sins that his kids might have committed in their heart without Job even knowing about it, or without even them, frankly, doing anything. It's sort of like Minority Report where Job is just sacrificing just in case they may be sinned. And so, this over-the-topness is similar to what we see in the Ninevites, who are over-the-top repenters. There is a painstaking detail at the extent at which these Ninevites repent. So, in chapter 3, we get this story of the Ninevites' repentance before the king even has to declare it. Just right after Jonah goes one day's journey into the city and proclaims this five-word sermon, the people already proclaim a fast They put on sackcloth, they put it on them and their kids. Then the news reaches the king and the repentance goes even further. The king takes off his robe, puts on sackcloth, and sits in ashes. Now, it's important to note, sackcloth and ashes is a pretty Israelite way of repenting. This wouldn't have been necessarily a common thing that we find in other ancient Near Eastern cultures for repentance. So, that's important, just like Job, who, who is from the land of Uz, and yet repen- uh, acts righteously in very Israelite ways, so too we have here the Ninevites who are repenting in particularly Israelite ways. I mean, the question is even raised, how would they have even known to repent in this way as foreigners? But again, that's maybe beside the point and only goes to show that this is really not about some historical activity, but about these themes of of prophecy, repentance, God's justice, God's mercy, and in that way, again, reminds us of, of more of the wisdom element to this book. Anyway, he decrees, not only does he take off his robe and put on sackcloth and ashes, he decrees a complete fast, both for people and animals, and this is where we get almost humorous in the extent at which they repent. The animals are also called to fast, no food, no water. The animals are also covered in sackcloth and called to cry out to God. So, everyone, everything must turn from their evil ways and injustice. And this goes to show too that this isn't just about show, this isn't about just doing it uh, as a show on the outside, but it's also about changing your ways and then, there's an interesting phrase, which is helpful because it, in some ways, says that this repentance is also not just to manipulate God as though God is some divine calculus, A plus B equals C, the divine men- vending machine that if we put in the quarter, we'll definitely get to live. It actually says, who knows? Maybe God will turn away from wrath and not kill us. So, it's coming at the end of all this repentance and saying, who knows? We don't know. There's a, there's a deep humility that comes from the king. Who knows? Maybe God will turn away and not do what God said that God would do. And this, again, reminds us of chapter one with the sailor, the captain, who also had a similar humility and said, you know, who knows? Maybe the God will be kind to us and we won't perish. So, that humility is part of this repentance as well. God sees, again, just to finish out what happens in the chapter, God sees that they're turning away from their evil ways, and God doesn't carry out the punishment. And just like Job, then, we have this non Israelite group acting like perfect Israelites. So let's talk a little bit more, though, about this question, this statement. Who knows? Maybe God will turn away from wrath and not kill us. Because this question, this statement, gets at the heart of a lot it ties together a lot of the themes that we find in Jonah, you know, prophecy, repentance, but also themes of God's freedom, which we're not going to talk about too much in particular, but only as it relates to God as the creator, as well as God as redeemer. And again, this relationship between God's mercy and God's justice. A lot of that is tied up in this question. Who knows? Maybe God will turn away from wrath and not kill us, right? Implied in that is, well, no one knows. No one knows what God's going to do. Maybe God will turn away from the wrath and not kill us. Maybe God won't. And again, this idea of God's freedom is important partly because this had happened in Israelite history where Israel treated God as some sort of magic, magical formula or magical equation where A plus B equals C and, and Jeremiah talks about this. In his book and uh, in his prophecies, where it seems like the Israelites sometimes had this idea that they could manipulate God with the right with the right rituals. If we pray this way, if we go through these rituals, he uses this a phrase the Temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, as though it's some mantra that would get God to do what we want and that the temple is this magic place where God would never. Transgress or tear it down, or we, because we have the temple, we are safe forever. That's contrasted here with this humility. Who knows what God may do, right? God's free to do whatever God wants.
0: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp.
1: You know, Pete, I've been pretty emotional this week, and I was trying to reflect on why that was, and it turns out, you know, my best friend from college just died. My mom's been in the hospital, and I just haven't taken the time to reflect and process all of that, and it's been coming out in all these wonky ways, and that's exactly what therapy can help with. That's
0: really been my experience with therapy as well. I've benefited tremendously from therapy, and I think lately I've been able to get to the point of why. It's learning to look at your situation more as an observer from the outside instead of just reacting to things, just thinking about it and processing the information. I find a lot of the problems become more manageable that way. And that's what therapy does for me.
1: So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com BNP today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P BNP.
0: A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different.
1: There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary where students are prepared for a call to ministry. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on the Bible for Normal People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much P and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at the Bible for Normal People.
0: It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email. Admissions at UPSEM.edu.
1: If you remember, though, the life of David, this question, who knows, maybe God will relent, Is might come to mind. And it, I, I want to bring it up only because it does highlight this contrast between a story where this shows up in the history of Israel and then the story here in Jonah with non-Israelites. We have this heartbreaking story of David in 2 Samuel 12, where a very similar question is asked. And it starts with the same first two words, who knows? It's the same two words in, in Hebrew as well. And if you remember this story, it's where Nathan confronts David for raping Bathsheba and murdering Uriah. Nathan tells this parable and then basically traps David. It's similarly to how God is going to kind of trap Jonah here in a minute. but as punishment, Nathan says that God is going to kill the baby that was born to David and Bathsheba. Listen to this passage and and just note the similarities between the Ninevites and David. Stay tuned for more Bible for Normal People.
2: Hey everyone, my name is Ryan Bond from Richmond, Virginia, and I'm part of the producers group here at the Bible for Normal People. This podcast is brought to you by supporters on the Patreon platform. For as little as $1 per month, you can be part of the group that brings this podcast to normal people everywhere. As a thanks for your support, there are lots of videos from Pete and Jared, a discussion group, and other rewards. So check it out at Patreon.com/slash/The Bible for Normal People. One thing I appreciate about being part of the Patreon group is access to video recordings in which Pete and Jared answer listener questions and dive deeper on topics from previous podcasts. If you've gotten something from this free podcast, please do consider supporting Pete and Jared at Patreon.com/slash/The Bible for Normal People. If you aren't able to support the show financially, don't worry. You can go to iTunes and rate and review the podcast. That can go a long way to help others find us. One group in particular we want to thank is our producers group, who truly helped the podcast improve and make it what it is today. Thanks to John C. Bruss, Sean Michael Phillips, Brett Miracle, Dorsey Marshall, Scott Goldman, Esther Goetz, Becky Davenport, Ed, Jack Wilhelm, and Stephen Parker. The Bible for Normal People couldn't happen without you. Now back to the podcast.
1: David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused and he would not eat any food with him. On the seventh day, the child died. David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still living, he wouldn't listen to us when we spoke to him. How can we now tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate the story goes on to talk about uh, him after the child had died. He gets up and he starts to eat again. And his attendants ask him, you know, why are you doing this? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now the child is dead. You get up and eat. And this is David's answer in, in verse 22. This is where that question comes in. He answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, here it is, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me, and let the child live. This would have been a hard thing to recall in the context of Jonah because here it is an Israelite, not just any Israelite, but King David, for many, the man after God's own heart, who repents, and then God does not relent, and God does not listen to him. And then to have the Ninevites, the people who would have historically been known as brutal murderers enslavers of the Israelites repent and God listens to them? The questions that this book raises go deep. Now, a brief side note here, just because it's in chapter three and worth noting. We have this phrase that we talked about in part two, a three days journey, right? The fish had a three, uh, Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. At the beginning of this chapter, it's presented as though Jonah is about to go on a journey. This is how the NIV starts chapter three. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, and then we have our five-word sermon there. Now, that might just be there to let us know that it's a big city, but it is curious that it's presented as though Jonah's going to go on another journey because he just went on a journey in chapter 2. And this three days also connects us to chapter 2. So, perhaps this is a way of saying something more profound. Just as the fish Went down on a journey to Sheol to be Yahweh's vehicle for Jonah's salvation, right? So the fish had to go down into the scary, chaotic, murky waters all the way to Sheol to be Yahweh's vehicle for Jonah's salvation. Now it's Jonah's turn to return the favor. Jonah is about to go down on a journey to Nineveh, a kind of Sheol, not the kind of place that he would necessarily want to be going to be Yahweh's vehicle now for Nineveh's salvation. Okay, so, we've talked about prophecy, we've talked about the importance of repentance, and these are themes that now that you go back and look in Jonah, look for these themes, prophecy, repentance, not necessarily because it's giving a lot of answers, but because it's asking a lot of really good questions. But this brings us to our third big theme, grace and justice. Scholars don't agree on what the main theme of Jonah is, or even if there is one, but it's clear that this question of the relationship between God's mercy and God's justice is one of the top contenders for a major theme. And we see this most play out in chapter 4, sort of the climax of the book, because it's the debate here between God and Jonah on what, what is this whole story that we've been telling, what's it about? Now, as an overview, it's it's a little bit of a strange story. So, I'm just going to give you the highlights and then we'll we'll jump into it a little bit. Nineveh repents, again, at the end of, of chapter three. And we start with chapter four with Jonah being displeased greatly. Jo- Jonah's unhappy that the Ninevites repent. He prays to God and says, God, isn't this just what I said when I was still in my own country? So, now we have a hat tip to what was the real reason at the beginning, just what I said when I was still in my own country, that is why I fled beforehand, for I know you are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in kindness, renouncing punishment. Please, Yahweh, take my life, for I would rather die than live. Then Yahweh replied, are you that deeply grieved? So, that's how chapter four starts. And then we have this interesting story where Jonah makes a booth, I use that word specifically, but it's a shelter. To see the way I think of it is, it's actually Jonah's going out to see who knows, maybe God won't relent. So, in the same way the king asks the question, who knows, maybe God will relent, it's almost as though Jonah is sitting out east of the city, watching to see who knows, maybe God won't relent. And then while Jonah is sitting out there, Yahweh appoints a kikayon plant, which some translate it is like a castor oil plant. It's likely what it is, but we don't really know for sure. So, a lot of translators or or scholars will just say the kikayon plant. And so, Yahweh appoints this kikayon plant. And if you remember, I mentioned in part two that there are four things that God appoints, uses that that word, appoints, in the book. The first was the, the fish. And now, in these few verses, we have the other three. First, Yahweh appoints the Kikion plant to give Jonah shade. Jonah's happy about the plant. And then, God appoints a worm to attack the plant. And then, God appoints an east wind and Jonah begs to die because he is deeply grieved about the plant. And then, we get Yahweh's final speech. And this is what it says you have been concerned about this plant, though you didn't tend to it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? So, that's the end of the book. It ends with that question, which is a haunting question. And we'll get there in a minute. It's tied up in these themes of God as creator, God's relationship with humanity and grace and justice, mercy and justice, and God's relationship with Israel. So, but before we get there, I just want to make a point on how structured chapter four is. You know, we talked about in the first part, one of the reasons we don't necessarily take this as a historically accurate account is just because of how stylized this work really is. We saw it in the prayer of Jonah in chapter 2, which is a pastiche of all these psalms that are stitched together to make the larger communal point. Rather than this being about one individual Jonah, we start to maybe think that this is about a community of people, Israel. And we see that through this pastiche in chapter 2. Well, chapter 4 is highly structured too, and this is, it's clearly a a wisdom-like chapter with, Yahweh getting the last word, but importantly, ending with a question. And also, Yahweh and Jonah in this chapter both get exactly 47 words each. So, it indicates that the author wants you to know that there isn't a clear winner in this debate between God's grace, God's mercy, and God's justice. I mean, sure, it's important Yahweh gets the last word. That does mean something. But Jonah has a case and we can't dismiss it too quickly. Now, just to finish that thought for those of you who like to be detailed in particular like me, I'll just kind of lay this out. So, Jonah has the first 39 words in verses 2 and 3 and then Yahweh replies with three words and then Jonah has three words and then Yahweh has five words and then Jonah has five words and then Yahweh ends with his 39 words to round out the book. So, it's pretty interesting if we pay close attention that the structure can actually give us some hint as to what the author is trying to tell us
0: did you know fast growing trees is the biggest online nursery in the us with more than 10000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the us they have everything you could possibly want like fruit trees palm trees evergreens house plants and so much more whatever you're interested in they have it for you find the perfect fit for your climate and space Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever.
1: We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just called them bushes, but we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. And that's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact <laughs> instruction level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow We love the process.
0: This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You know, folks, I've had allergies my whole life, and I never knew what to do with them. I didn't even know that I had allergies. But anyway, one day I went to the doctor several years ago, and I said, listen, I keep having a stuffed nose, and it's just my throat hurts, and it's horrible. And he says, have you tried Claritin-D? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, you have to. See, luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin-D. This double action combination of prescriptive strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. You know, I've been taking Claritin D for my allergies for about 15 years and it's been an absolute life changer. I can go for hikes without my eyes watering like a fountain. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat and my nose isn't stuffed all the time. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed.
1: So, this chapter 4 represents, again, this debate Jonah represents the argument for God's justice, and Yahweh represents the argument for God's mercy, and God argues the case with Jonah through this odd lesson. It's, it's an object lesson at the end of the book, right? Where we have Jonah sitting out in a shelter that he's made, God providing a plant which provides shade, Jonah's happy, but then God provides a worm which eats the plant, and then the sun rises, and God provides this east wind that beats down on Jonah, and he begs for death. And then God gives the final words. So, what are the lessons and what are the themes that we find here that are tied to this grace and justice theme? One is, and if we go back, we'll see it through the whole book, that God is creator. We see this again in the four appointments of the fish, the kikayon, the worm, the east wind. But we see it also in chapter 1 as God brings about and then calms down the storm. We see it in the animals who repent. We see it in the callback to creation in the, at the end of the fish ordeal when Jonah is spit back up on dry land That's clear uh, resonance with, with Genesis language. God has created everything and as such gets the final say in who receives mercy and who receives justice. And if you remember, in many of the things we've talked about on the podcast, and I know Pete has definitely talked about this on many occasions, that God's relationship to humanity as creator is tied to God's relationship to humanity as redeemer. This is true in the life of Israel, and in some ways, the book of Jonah is starting to maybe ask the question of whether or not it makes sense that because God is creator of all things, God can also be redeemer of all things, whereas that had been localized within the people of Israel before, now it's starting to get universalized and we're starting to run against these questions of what is the relationship of God to Israel? and God to all the rest of humanity? How can we have a special relationship with God and yet see that God is both creator and redeemer of all creation? So, this idea of God as creator can't be separated fully from the idea of God as redeemer, and that is actually the one primary point in this final episode with Jonah. This is the argument that God is going to make. This reminds me of Jesus' point at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, it says this, "'You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. God causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others?' Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is is perfect. If you notice, we have these same themes of God as creator, God as redeemer, and therefore our call to love our enemies. God as creator who sends rain and sun is tied to God's mercy and Jesus' call to love our enemies. So, Matthew chapter 5 is very Jonah-like. And it's tied to God as creator and, therefore, God as redeemer and this question of what does that mean for this us versus them mentality that we might have, especially as it comes to us through our enemies. We see this more starkly toward the end of the book with Jonah and this object lesson as Jonah is revealed to be hypocritical. In some ways, God tricks Jonah into agreeing with him. God creates this Yon plant to give to give Jonah shade, which he's happy about, but then he's upset to the point of death when the plant is taken away from him. And God says essentially this, this is sort of the argument at the end of the book. So, you're allowed to care for something you didn't create, so much that you want to die if it dies, and yet you're telling me, God, I can't care for something that I did create. Which then leads again to this theme of God's relationship to outsiders, well, specifically Gentiles, of course, in this case. Importantly, we find in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, when Jonah first gets upset with God, he quotes in this surprising way this important creed that we find in Exodus 34 and then again throughout scriptures about who God is. It says, "'That is why I fled beforehand, for I know that you are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in kindness, renouncing punishment.'" So, this is, from Exodus 34, a statement that we have found throughout the Hebrew Bible that Israel would uh, pronounce and confess about who God is. This is the kind of God that we have, this creed of sorts has yet to be applied outside of Israel's relationship with God. Is God this kind of God to everyone? And here, we have it expanded through Jonah's unlikely confession. He, he almost, he's, he's almost resentful of this idea. And yet, I mean, we have hints of this, of course, throughout the Bible. We have Hagar in Genesis 21, we have Ruth, the Moabite, we have Jethro, we have others. So, it's clear that that God has some kind of relationship and is gracious to outsiders, but we're not real clear on what that is. And then, later in the prophetic books, and then clearly here in Jonah, we see that while God has a special relationship with Israel, God cares deeply for all of God's creation, and as such can be merciful. Again, God is free to be merciful whenever God wants to be, but can be merciful to God's creation, how can it be that we are God's people and yet increasingly see God as the God of everyone and not just us? This is an important theme here as we talk about the relationship between God's justice and God's mercy. The book doesn't answer the difficult question of how we balance mercy and justice in our own lives or as people or society. But it does raise some important questions about our relationship to God, our relationship to our enemies, what it means for God to love. This is exactly the kind of question, the kinds of questions that Jews would be wrestling with as they find themselves as a conquered people spread out among the known world, starting to see that the God they had held for themselves might just be bigger than the one that they originally imagined. Thanks again for listening to another episode of The Bible for Normal People. I hope this has been helpful and helped you to have a different vision and view of the book of Jonah than maybe you would have had growing up or that you've had more recently. Be sure to check us out on Patreon, patreon.com front slash the Bible for Normal People, where you can engage with a whole community of people around questions like these that the book of Jonah asks and doesn't answer for us. Perhaps the wisdom is working it out in community together. Thanks so much. We'll see you next time.
0: Thanks to our team, executive producer Megan Kamick, audio engineer Dave Gerhardt, creative director Tessa Stoltz, marketing wizard Reed Lively, transcriber and community champion Stephanie Spate, and web developer Nick Striegel. For Pete, Jared, and the entire Bible for Normal People team, thanks for listening.